Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. You know, I'm really grateful uh, for, for the intro, particularly the bit about the Borg. Um, I think I'm going to set that as an exam question. I've got to be knocking one up for just after Christmas, and I'm thinking that's going to be a really good one. Yeah, is the Trinity like the Borg? Discuss. Something like that. Uh, that, sh- that should keep them busy for a couple of hours. Okay, uh, let's pray uh, and uh, let's get underway. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that uh, you bring us here together, that we may sit under your word. Uh, we pray as we do so, uh, and as we ponder in particular this passage from John's Gospel where uh, our Saviour, your Son, the Lord Jesus, washes the feet of the disciples. Uh, we pray that uh, this may strike us with all the force that you would have it uh, do. Uh, we pray that uh, you will use this to uh, transform and mould and reshape uh, the ways in which we both lead and are led. And we ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Okay, now uh, we're on page 11 of the uh, handout. Uh, So making our way uh, by easy stages through it. Uh, And just as we kick off, uh, just think of that reading. Just have it open in front of you. Uh, John 13, uh, very traditional uh, passage. Uh, And uh, just ask yourself uh, a couple of questions as, as we start to get into it. First of all, What motivates Jesus to do it? That's going to be one of our background questions lurking through this morning. What motivates Jesus to to, to do this extraordinary act uh, of uh, humility and humiliation? That's the first thing. The second thing is, would you like your leader to behave like this? Would you like your leader to behave like this? If you are led, and you read about the Lord Jesus here, do you have that quiet sense of triumph of, yes, at last, someone who's understood what a leader really ought to be doing? That's the second question. Would you like your leader to be like this? And the third uh, question uh, is simply a, a, a textual one in verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And the comprehension question, the text question, is how wide does that you actually go? So those three questions, kind of lurking in the background, please, uh, as we go through the, the, the rest of this material. What motivates the Lord Jesus? Do you want your leader to be like this? And who's covered by you in verse 14 of chapter 13. Okay, so that's uh, by way of setting everything up. Uh, Let's just recap where we've uh, got to uh, in in terms of what we were looking at uh, yesterday. Uh, If you remember, in that second session, we identified two key questions as we were looking at the particular love uh, of the Father for the Son. And the questions were, can you be subject and of equal value? Can you be in authority and genuinely loving? Huge questions, uh, as we were thinking yesterday, for our culture, uh, which would tend to say that genuine equal value means that nobody's subject to anybody, uh, putting it very bluntly, uh, and there is a sharp distinction between genuine love and authority. You can have one, you can have the other, you can't have both, as it were. 
Now, uh, we've started to unpick those questions from the point of view of the love of the Father for the Son. We've noted that it's a giving love, it's generous in character, and it rests on the Father's right to give. Uh, And that's taken us to thinking about an unenvious love uh, in one particular way. The unenvious love, if you like, uh, of the leader uh, for, for the led. There's authority, but still genuine love. Makes us think that authority and love can be possible companions, uh, which actually really does need uh, saying. And in particular, you have that interesting twist from John 5, uh, 3, 23, 24, where we realise that the one in authority can be the one who insists on equal value for someone to whom they give and delegate things. It is the father who wants equal honour for his son. He has given all authority to his son that all may honour the son even as they honour the father in the same level, that's to say. Now, uh, that's still going to leave us one way or another with questions about being subject and being of equal value. If you are subject to someone, does that mean that you are, just by that fact, a lesser kind of being, that you are being made less, that you are being made inferior? The reason why that matters so much is because, of course, of the obedience of the Lord Jesus. Uh, And we know that the obedience of the Lord Jesus is utterly central to our salvation. It is because of the obedience of the Lord Jesus uh, that he fulfills the law uh, and we are imputed with his righteousness. He keeps the law for us, is the way that it's uh, uh, put in the uh, uh, first book of homilies, homily three on salvation. Cranmer's point is that the Lord Jesus is the one who perfectly keeps the law for us. He's obedient in that way and therefore... Uh, we are justified and counted righteous. By one man's disobedience comes death. By another man's obedience comes justification. So the obedience of Jesus, really, really central. And as we talk about obedience within the Trinity, therefore, we're talking about something that one way or another will impact on our accounts of uh, salvation sooner or later. So let's think about the love of the Son for the Father. Uh, And as we go through this material, last uh, little point on on page 11, as we go through this material, we will see that the son too has an unenvious love for his father, which takes joy in another's good. That is not sorrowful at another's good, that kind of classical definition of, of envy, an unenvying love, if you like, for the leader. It's different because this is a love that's manifested in obedience and not in giving, or at least not towards the Father in that kind of way. Now, page 12. What I've just spoken about uh, is a highly controversial point uh, because I've used the word obedience with relation to the Son in his eternal relationship with the Father. And that, at the moment, has become a hugely controversial point. Uh, And uh, I've uh, even had the temerity uh, to to link that obedience with love. Uh, And there may well be, if you stop and think about it, that sort of little bit within you that says, love and obedience, do they really go together? We've questioned whether love and authority go together. If you obey someone, do you necessarily love them? Uh, That kind of thing. Is it a genuine love? Or actually, is it something servile and really rather nasty? Uh, there's that question, I think, that our culture has. 
And therefore, one of the things we have to do is to think about how we know about the love of the Son at all. I've talked about the love of the Son. How, how on earth am I in a position to know it? That means, of course, uh, that we have to go back to the particular revelation that the Son brings. Is the idea that love and obedience go together really just human speculation uh, on the part of uh, sort of middle-aged white males like me, or what? Do love and obedience really go together? And to answer that question, we must look at what love is on the part of the Son, and we must look at the revelation, therefore, that the Son brings. And in particular, of course, at this point, we're not thinking about the love that the Son has for us, but actually we're thinking about the love that the Son has for his Father. How does the Son love the Father? Now, to open this out, uh, heading 2.1, I want to outline the egalitarian Trinitarian claim that we were looking at yesterday just a little bit more. And remember that by egalitarian at this point, I'm not just talking about someone who says uh, that the different persons of the Trinity are equally divine, that they are of equal value in that kind of way, but someone who is making the further claim that says for them to be of equal value, there cannot be relationships of obedience or hierarchy in the Trinity. That's the, uh, that's the point. Uh, the idea is, uh, and this is very deeply felt, I think, by those who want to, to, to say this, uh, that the point is that the, the kind of description that I'm going to give you is normally uh, spoken of as a kind of Arianism, Arianism being the 4th century heresy, which says that the Son is not truly God. So uh, in some of the debates that, that I have, you have the kind of interesting uh, moment uh, where someone accuses me of being a dangerous heretic, Uh, and uh, you find yourself uh, thinking, oh, that's fresh. Uh, Normally, I'm saying that to other people. Uh, But no, that's that's okay. Um, You sort of say, well, yeah, let's see if it's true. Uh, I don't think it is uh, on this particular point. But Arianism is the idea that the Son is not truly divine. And if we say that the Son's relationship with the Father is one of obedience, submission, subjection, are we then saying he's less than truly divine? That starts to be the question. Now, obviously, the uh, guys who are, who are sort of uh, making this claim uh, that we should have an egalitarian trinity, they know very well uh, that there are texts in the New Testament, for instance, John 38, uh, where Jesus says that he's come to do the Father's will. So what's their answer to that? Well, their answer is the one that uh, I've put down uh, just by the arrow uh, at the end of heading 2.1, halfway down page 12. Uh, the, the answer is, look, all of that is only talking about Jesus as a human being. It's not the eternal relationship that's at stake. That's the thing. It's not the eternal relationship that's at stake. Now, um, please note that that kind of argument, that it refers to the Lord Jesus in his humanity rather than in his divinity, is exactly one that we do use in other ways. So when, for instance, we say that the Son was thirsty, what we mean by that is that the eternal person, the Son, incarnate uh, uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ, had an experience in his humanity of thirst that, uh, as God, he does not have. Because God, in eternity, yeah, is he ever thirsty? No. He's, He's not. Of course he's not. Uh, Does he, as God in eternity, ever die? No. 
uh, one of the consequences uh, of the Lord Jesus assuming a second nature, assuming humanity, is that he has experiences that he does not have and could not have in his other nature. So at that point, the big question is, do we think that this idea of obedience only belongs on that human nature side? Okay, that starts to be the question. Sorry that it's quite an involved argument. Uh, Bear with me on it because actually it's out there uh, and people will say it to you. So, yeah, Uh, I'm sorry if it's complicated. uh, And if it doesn't sound too unsympathetic, get over it. Uh, because, uh, because actually this is what real life uh, actually is like, and this is the state of play uh, in, in terms of, uh, of discussion outside uh, conservative evangelical circles. Okay? That takes us to heading 2-2, uh, the egalitarian claim and revelation. Now, I've tried to outline the egalitarian claim uh, as uh, uh, clearly and as strongly as I can, Uh, because we need to be aware of the strong form of its arguments, its strongest forms, uh, in order to be able to test it properly and thoroughly and honestly. So, big questions. First question is 221. How do we know that passages like John 6, 38 only refer to Jesus as a human being? How do we know that? I'm perfectly justified in saying that the passages about thirst or the passages about death actually clearly refer to Jesus in his humanity and not his deity, uh, because there's so much else in the rest of Scripture that actually makes me say God doesn't thirst, God doesn't die, that kind of thing. But how do the egalitarians know that John 6.38 and other passages like it, where Jesus says he's come to do to the, do the Father's will, only refer to Jesus in his humanity? That's quite a significant question because it makes you think that there's a risk, isn't there, that assumptions are being made about what it is like to be God and in particular what it is like to be the Son. Whereas the only reason we know anything at all about it is because of what the Lord Jesus tells us. Actually, in the Incarnation, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that we see a Son who obeys. Is that not true? Yes, it is. Once you start saying, does the son obey, then you find yourself thinking time after time after time he does. He obeys when he says things like, it is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem. The son of man has to suffer, uh, and so on, and so on, and so on. And critically, of course, the uh, prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is not my will, but yours be done. So in that way, you cannot chuck a brick in the four Gospels, without coming across instances of Jesus' obedience to the Father. And, of course, uh, uh, it's right there in the passage that Ben took us through yesterday, in Jesus' baptism, that all righteousness may be fulfilled, Jesus is aligning himself to his Father's will, isn't he? Now, that's hugely significant because how do I know about God? Only actually through the revelation that centers finally on Jesus. John, uh, after all, has this very, very strong doctrine that we only know about God the Father because God the Son has made him known. So the verse that I've referred you to, of course, is John 1, uh, 18, uh, in that uh, particular part of the prologue. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, or only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. How has he made him known? Well, Because, of course, he has taken flesh. And what's more, 
John's claim is that in the flesh, we see God. We see the Father. So turn with me to John 14, a hugely central passage, of course, for our understanding of uh, uh, what Jesus uh, does. Jesus answered, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And it's, it's remarkable, uh, because in this little section of John's uh, Gospel, in the Upper Room Discourse, as it's sometimes called, what you have quite frequently is Jesus uh, making a point and someone then asking a question about it, and in the answer... Jesus not only uh, answers the original question, but makes another point, which then becomes the basis for a further question. So it's a little like watching a, a kind of chain uh, that, that gradually just goes on and on and takes you further and further. Uh, and here, in verses 6 and 7, of course, we've got a remarkable statement of the uniqueness and the necessity of the Lord Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the whole idea... Uh, that you can say, for instance, uh, uh, oh, well, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, they all worship the same God, really. No, that's not true. It's not true because there is no access to God except through the Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You need to be very clear about that, I think. If you really knew me, verse 7, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And you stop and think about that, and you think, hang on a tick. Uh, That means uh, that actually, in the incarnation, I have genuinely seen God. Not, of course, in the physical flesh and, and, and blood, but actually in the relationships that have been disclosed as the physical flesh and blood, uh, the, uh, the, the eternal Son incarnate uh, as the Lord Jesus... Uh, actually walks the earth. Right back there, in the incarnation itself, you have seen God. Uh, Philip, uh, of course, uh, uh, doesn't quite uh, go with that. So verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Uh, And there you you find yourself thinking, so Philip's point is, no, uh, in a way, yeah, maybe the Father's there and all the rest of it, not denying that, but have we yet seen him? And Jesus answered, don't you know me, verse 9, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Now, that's worthwhile just unpacking just a a little bit because Jesus is saying that, yes, in the incarnation, there is genuine revelation of God as he truly is, as he truly is. Why is that possible? This is the second little bit uh, in verse 10. Uh, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? And that's explaining, isn't it, why the question that Philip's asked is a, is a non-question. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? So there you have it, that the thing about Jesus as he walks the earth is that his Father is still in him and he is still in the Father. Uh, we rightly say that God is one, because these two persons completely indwell each other. 
And that, again, is a marvellous thought about a relationship, isn't it? Uh, because you know, my, my wife and I are sort of coming up to 25 years married, uh, and I sort of find myself thinking that over the years, even someone quite as insensitive as myself has got to know her pretty well, uh, really. Nevertheless, are there moments uh, where I don't know what she's thinking? Yes. Even after 25 years. Uh, my father, uh, who has been married for 60 years and is far more sensitive and perceptive and emotionally intelligent and all that kind of thing, uh, still comments from time to time that there are things about my mother uh, that surprise him uh, in, in one way or another. Human beings do not indwell each other in this kind of way. But what we're looking at here, uh, and this really is uh, to do with the unity of God and why we say that the three persons are one God is to do with a a complete mutual indwelling so that you are known and know the other completely. And of course, when the other person is an infinite person and you are an infinite person, just again, the human mind starts to boggle, really, doesn't it, Uh, at the wonder uh, and the depth uh, of a relationship that's actually like that. But Jesus' point is that that relation is still in being while he walks the earth. And as he discloses that relationship, and as he walks the earth, being in the Father uh, and the Father in him, then we are seeing what God is really like in eternity. That's the, that's the point. And that's the value of the incarnation, if you like, from a human point of view. Uh, 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 or one of the values of the Incarnation, I should say, strictly speaking, uh, the the way that uh, actually we have before us one of the persons who is completely indwelling and indwelt by another. Uh, The technical term for this uh, is perichoresis, uh, sometimes coherence. This is the second bullet point just before the discussion uh, moment on on page 12. Uh, Perichoresis uh, is... uh, simply Greek for indwelling, really. Uh, but if you, uh, if you go around and, and read some of the uh, longer books on it, uh, then it'll be listed probably as perichoresis, uh, or even, in Latin, circumincessio. Um, but coherence, mutual indwelling, I think that gets it as well as anything for us. That's the eternal relationship. That's what's disclosed. That means, I think, and this is crucial... There's no discontinuity between how the, father, how the Father and Son relate to each other as the sons on earth and how the Father and Son relate to each other in eternity. That as the Son says, not my will but your will to be, be done, that is characteristic of his eternal relationship with his Father as it is uh, of his uh, uh, relationship uh, uh, on, on earth. Now, that means that, as, as far as I'm concerned, that one of the key problems with the egalitarian claim is that for it to work, you have to say precisely that the incarnation doesn't reveal the eternal relationship in that kind of way. Do you see that? You have to say it doesn't reveal it. It's saying that what you see is not what you get. The relationship may look like obedience, actually it's very different. And that's saying that the revelation principle in the incarnation doesn't hold. Now, uh, just a a couple of minutes with a convenient friend or neighbour. Would it be a bad thing that the egalitarian claim 
hinders the incarnation being revelation. Uh, is that one of those kind of ho-hum things uh, where one person has uh, barbecue sauce uh, on, on the burger uh, and the other person prefers Dijon mustard? Is it a matter of taste uh, or actually uh, is it more serious uh, or what and why? So just a couple of moments uh, talking to each other on that point. Okay. Okay. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Because once you start getting to the point uh, of saying, actually, it looks as though Jesus' relationship uh, is is one of obedience to the Father, but actually, no, it's not really that. Uh, And uh, uh, what we see on earth does not really tell us about the eternal relationships. Uh, Then you start to question uh, a number of other things about the revelation that Jesus brings. And God starts to become unknown, actually, doesn't he? You, You start to find yourself thinking, if I don't know that, although it looked like that, but if I don't know that, what else don't I know? Uh, God starts to become unknown. Uh, And actually, of course, at that point, it starts to open up the field for for human speculation. Uh, You find yourself thinking, if there is something incomplete in that kind of way, and imperfect, if I can use that term, about the revelation that the Lord Jesus brings, because I don't really know God through it, then perhaps I will have to work it out for my own after all, or my own after all. That would be dangerous, of course, uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, because of the great dishonour it brings to the Lord Jesus, who's pretty clear that he thinks he has revealed stuff. That would be one thing. Uh, And uh, uh, the the other thing, of course, is that uh, uh, you you find yourself thinking, at that point, uh, one will have a theology that is essentially scripture and my best thoughts, rather than under scripture. And if I'm prepared to do this with this particular idea, what other ones will I, I do it with? So hugely serious. Uh, and that's why, uh, actually, I, I, I think uh, that, that although uh, people may initially think, well, is the egalitarian claim, um, people like me who disagree with it, simply dancing on the head of a pin, uh, I think the answer is no, because it's one of those moments where you think, like the iceberg that hits the Titanic, there's a lot more under the surface than initially maybe uh, appears. And critically, we do want to honour the Lord Jesus, don't we? And we do want to take his word for what he says his relationship uh, actually is. And it dishonours him if he says it's one of obedience for us to say it's not. Doesn't it? So, page 13, heading 3. The enigma of the son as servant. Now, uh, of course, uh, at this point we're about to approach John, John 13 and that uh, striking passage, uh, which I think many of us instinctively turn to, uh, to uh, understand uh, the, the role of what it is to be a servant leader. Uh, but we, we note, just in general, Jesus says the thing about his leaders is their servant leaders. It's the servant quality that's the extra additional uh, thing, the, the, not the icing on the cake, but the thing that actually radically transforms the, the whole thing. He himself is the template for that. That's very clear uh, in the way that he handles things uh, in Mark 10. Uh, And, of course, it's clear also uh, in in John 13. However, when we say servant leader, there's a bit of an ambiguity, isn't it? What what, what quite do we mean by that? Uh, And in particular, uh, why would we think of Jesus as a servant uh, leader? Uh, Did you employ him uh, as your servant uh, in the way uh, that you, you, you might sort of contract with someone uh, to, to come in and be a butler or something like that on Downton Abbey. Uh, 
uh, or slightly more, more up-to-date uh, in the way that you might employ someone uh, to uh, serve you by making sure that, uh, uh, that there's uh, coffee every morning at 11 uh, in, in the office, that, that sort of thing. Why is Jesus a servant? And we'd have to say, wouldn't we, that primarily Jesus is a servant with respect to the Father. That's where it starts. On any view, Jesus does his Father's will on earth. Everyone's agreed with that, on, on that. And the key promise, in that sense, is about the Messiah, is that God's Messiah will be God's servant, in a way that Solomon failed to be as David's son. Especially clear, of course, in Isaiah 53 that uh, actually it's, it's very clear that uh, the servant serves there as the servant of God. The people who are the beneficiaries of that service are the people of Israel. They are served in that sense. But the servant is the servant of God. Now, uh, again, think of the kind of Downton Abbey uh, thing. Uh, which from time to time, I admit, is on the TV uh, in, in our, our home. And, and from time to time, I just happen to sort of breeze in. Uh, you know, there, there, are no, there are no embattled alien space fleets in that, as far as I can see. Um, although, actually, uh, you do wonder about the aristocratic head of the household, don't you? Um, but, um, uh, but there you are, you, you sort of go in, uh, and what you see characteristically uh, on one episode or another uh, is that hugely impressive bloke who's the butler uh, coming in and and giving a gin and tonic or something like that uh, to some uh, strange person who's been invited in uh, by Lord whatever his name is. Now the person who gets the gin and tonic is being served isn't he? He's being served (laughs) by the butler. Whose servant is the butler? In the first instance uh, Lord the one with the alien-looking face, that one. And you see the point. We talk about the Lord Jesus as our servant. And actually, we need to be very, very careful about that, don't we? Because we need to say that in the first instance, he is the servant of his father, who he has come to do his father's will, and the father, in his infinite generosity to us, has ensured that his son will serve us. But actually, in the first instance, the son is our servant because he is the father's servant first. And that changes everything, doesn't it? It really does. Because think of the leader-led relationship. The leader-led relationship you can sort of think of simply like a line, can't you? That on the one hand, uh, you've got the leader. On the other hand, you've got the led. And the, the line is the relationship that goes between them. Leader and led. Who holds the leader accountable? Ultimately, the led uh, in our kind of uh, uh, cultural setup. Why so? Uh, well, think Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Supreme executive authority springs from a mandate from the masses. It's very natural for us to think in terms of democratic government. It's very natural for us to think that a leader only has legitimacy and authority insofar as the led grant it. And the lead, if they're sufficiently irritated, can take it away. Isn't that actually, characteristically, the way that we think about authority and leadership and leadership? In very many circumstances. And covertly, what creeps in there is the idea that actually, the leader has to merit leadership from the lead. 
Now, there are important elements of truth in that. Don't mishear me. But is that actually all there is to it? Just that line between leader and led? The reason why it's so important, of course, uh, is that uh, on that kind of basis, uh, what are the led lining themselves up for, given what human leadership is like? They're lining themselves up for perpetual disappointment and the perpetual need, as it were, to recall someone and say, you haven't matched up, I will vote you out. And as you think about our country's history, you think from time to time that there are great advantages in such a system, that you can vote people out. But of course, uh, you, you are, in that sense, lining yourself up for disappointment Oh, if only my leader were like the Lord Jesus and washed his disciples' feet. Is that actually what we want? I'll come back to that in a moment. But let's stop thinking of it as a, a line, because that's actually not quite true, is it, of the leadership that the Lord Jesus offers. Is Jesus your leader because you voted for him? No, he's not. He is a leader who was given to you and to me by somebody else. Actually, we have to stop thinking in terms of a line and we have to start thinking in terms of a triangle, don't we? So no, no lines. Well, let's moderate our thinking in lines. Let's think triangles uh, and that both leader and led have to think in terms of the Lord giving someone as a leader and the leader has to think in terms of being given a people to be led. Why is the Lord Jesus prepared to serve? For his Father's sake. Why does he love? Because his Father wants him to, to love, if I can put it in that very striking way. Why would I want to say that on the biblical evidence? Uh, because Jesus says, why is it that no one will go out of my hand? Well, the Father gave them to me, and he gave them to me to keep. The thing that finally guarantees my security, my salvation, my assurance, isn't just, if I can put it this way, the Lord Jesus' love for me, marvellous though that is, but the fact that actually my relationship with the Lord Jesus is rooted in Jesus' relationship with the Father. The Lord Jesus has said, no one will take them out of my hand because I do my Father's will and my Father gave them to me. My Father gave them to me to keep. And I love him so much, I will. Ultimately, where does my assurance rest? My assurance rests on the son's love for his father. Finally, 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 when you kind of trace it right back uh, in that kind of way in the John 6 Bread of Life discourse. Now, don't mishear me. When I say that Jesus serves us, yes, of course, we're saying uh, that he blesses us uh, and he leads us uh, and he is genuinely humble to us and all the rest of it. But actually, as we look at John 13, the thing that strikes us is that the Lord Jesus humbles himself in full humility, verse 3, knowing that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. That's where it kind of starts from, uh, that's where it goes, uh, and that's how it works, uh, if we can put it uh, that way. Now, uh, that starts to answer the first of the questions that uh, I, I put at the beginning of uh, this, uh, this thing. Uh, this session, that's the word, uh, at the beginning of this session. Why is the Lord Jesus like, uh, like uh, he is in John 13 and humbling himself? Uh, well, actually, because uh, uh, he is acutely aware of what his father has given him. 
It's the relationship with the father that will enable him to be the humble servant leader. Uh, And of course, at that point, uh, all of us who are leaders find ourselves thinking, uh, in that case, I must make sure that I am in deep contact with God and loving God so that I may discharge the gifts that he has given me in terms of leadership responsibilities. Of course, that's going to be the case. And what I will not do, even though it is remarkably tempting to do, is simply say, the people before whom I am humbling myself as a servant leader are not worth it. Uh, Because if we were to apply that test, then of course Jesus would not wash the feet of his servants here. Are these people worth washing? Well, no, they're not. One of them is about to betray him. Uh, Another one's about to deny him. Uh, And what's worse, the one who's about to deny him is doing all this arrogant pontificating stuff uh, about uh, how he's never going to do it. How infuriating is that? Uh, This is about as unworthy a bunch uh, of uh, people whose feet should be washed um, as you or I. Uh, And if it were not for the relationship with the Father, well... But it's the relationship with the Father that actually engages and empowers and stands behind the love for his own, which he shows here. I cannot say as a leader my people are not worth serving. Uh, That's simply not a runner. Tempting, but it's not on. And for the same reason, of course, the lead faced a similar question of, yes, the Lord has given me this person as a leader. Uh, Do I think that they are worth it? Am I disillusioned with them and all all the rest of it? Uh, Do I think that they do not meet my standards? Will I go on uh, being led by someone who's, in my view, not worth it? Uh, And actually, there comes an important point where you say, yes, I will, for Christ's sake. And for God's sake. Again, we have to think triangles, don't we? Uh, And that's there in quite a few of our human relationships. So you think about marriage uh, and you think about uh, uh, employer and servant or master and servant uh, in in Paul's uh, instructions about households. Why is the husband to to, to love his wife? Um, Because because she's lovable? No, because God has said that that's what he's to do. Uh, Why is it that the uh, servant is to behave in a particular way towards, uh, towards his master? Because the master is particularly good? No, because God has said so. Uh, we, we have to think triangles. If we start thinking simply, well, the person on the other end of the relationship, let's have a good look at them, of course we'll find that they're feet of clay. Of course we will. And I wonder if it sometimes crosses our minds that actually it's convenient for us to find that they have feet of clay. Because it will discharge us from our responsibilities too. So that's... Uh, in a sense, uh, uh, one of the huge things that we, we, we want to see uh, we want to see here about the about the foot washing, we'd also want to say what kind of service is it? Uh, and I posed the question, didn't I? Do you think uh, that uh, actually? Uh, do you think actually we're, we're dealing with something that we want? Uh, and as we read Peter's response, I think we have to say, no. This is not a, a humble servant leadership that he wants. He, he wants something rather different. If humble servant leadership looks like this, uh, then do I really want it? 
Uh, and that's one reason why I think I want to pose the question. Uh, we all read John 13 and we think, it, wouldn't it be lovely if our leaders were like this genuinely uh, rather than uh, either the arrogant stuck-up pigs uh, that we sometimes think that they are uh, or the complete set of incompetence that we think that they are. Uh, but actually, as, as we look at this, uh, we find ourselves confronted by the fact that servant leadership, when it serves me, may not be what I want. And the challenge then is humility. Am I humble enough to be led? And ultimately, gloriously, of course, uh, Peter here actually gets this one right and, and says, yes, uh, if that's the way that you want to serve me, then, then I will, uh, I will uh, obey you and be served in that particular way. Last thing, of course, we frequently cite John uh, 13 uh, in terms of a model of servant leadership. That takes us to the last question uh, that I actually put before you, uh, which is the scope of the word you in verse 14. Uh, And I say this to my shame uh, because I don't think I'd sort of uh, thought about this clearly uh, until Paul mentioned something uh, over the muesli this morning. But as you look at verse 14, is there anything there that actually makes you think, yes, this is definitely limited just to servant leaders? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Even within the upper room, it's not actually in the context, is it, at this point, of servant leadership. It's in the context of God's people being servants to each other. Now, how that's going to look, of course, is going to be uh, different in all kinds of ways. Uh, And we're given something here that is hugely challenging for leaders because they have to wash people's feet. There's no doubt about that. But do you think that sometimes we've actually glossed over the fact that this might apply to the lead too? And that actually some of the people whose feet they must wash are the leaders. The the reason why I think it's worthwhile just pondering that in our particular climate uh, is because of the enormous suspicion that people sometimes direct in our culture towards leaders. You know, leaders are in it to exploit, leaders are in it for power kicks, uh, leaders manipulate and, and, and all, all the rest of it. Very easy to, to say a leader is only a good leader if they do what I want, uh, sometimes described as managing upwards, uh, are often described, of course, as manipulation. Uh, but, but actually at that point, uh, this is a challenge for lead too, isn't it? It's a challenge for lead to wash their leader's feet as well as every other member of the congregation. Uh, it, it, it does look, as we read verse 14, quite mutual, doesn't it? You also should wash one another's feet. It's not just servant leaders. It's not just uh, an enacted parable uh, on leadership in that kind of, in that kind of way. Uh, and for leaders too, there is the enormous challenge to humility to allow the lead to do this. And that can be difficult too. Accepting help, uh, accepting service, uh, can be as humbling as actually offering it. Now, I want us to to stop there. 
just with uh, these thoughts about John 13, uh, our time uh, for this morning's session has gone, and there's no point, uh, I think, in rushing the next bit. So um, in uh, an expression of what I think you need rather than what you may not want, rather than what you want, I'm going to lead you by saying that uh, this afternoon we're going to pick up uh, more on the son's love for his father uh, from heading four, as well as the, the Holy Spirit. But let's pray now, uh, and then I think we're off for coffee, is that right? Loving Lord Jesus, as we read these words uh, about uh, what you did in the, in the upper room, uh, it both uh, shames uh, and excites us. It shames us because we recognise how reluctant we are to do this uh, to each other, uh, even though uh, we are so much less than you that uh, we find pride so readily creeping in, both in offering service and also in receiving it. Uh, and yet, Father, and, and yet, Lord Jesus, we find it exciting to read that you are this kind of Lord uh, of our lives. Uh, we are amazed uh, that uh, out of your great love uh, and in obedience to the Father, uh, you came to do just these kinds of things, uh, not to lord it over us in the way that Gentile rulers do, uh, but to be the genuine servant uh, of, uh, of your people. We thank you for this, and we praise and adore you for it. Amen.